Production. Recorded live. Hello and welcome. Today, this is unusual. Today is Sunday, September 20th, and I am here with Todd Allen Kudebeck, author of Life Mastery Keys, and the host and grand poobah of Life Mastery Radio. Hi, Todd. Hi. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Grand poobah? Oh, grand poobah. <laughs> grand poobah, what the heck? So, anyway, um, our topic today is clutter. And um, I think, you know, instead of saying the chapter is about clutter, I really want it to be about how much eliminating clutter, eliminating multitasking, eliminating shiny object syndrome, the law of distraction, all that stuff can lead to clearer thinking and all of that. How do you feel about that? Yeah, um... I, I, I'm trying to half and half on this. I, I think it's a really good chapter for your book, but I kind of feel like you don't quite want to do this chapter. I don't know that it's a whole chapter. Clutter is pretty self-explanatory. It is a metaphysical principle. It is a practice. Clutter is not only present in our lives, in material things all around us it's also our minds can get cluttered um you know we have close to oh i don't know tens of thousands of thoughts every day and and if our mind is really cluttered with these repetitive thought loops about silly things over and over again that's a clutter that distracts us from you know having good clear thoughts about our dreams, visions, and goals, or uh, goals that are present, that are immediate? Let's flip it and maybe talk for a few minutes about focus and the importance of focus, because the flip side of focus is, you know, clutter and distractions and all of that. Yeah, so being able to, I'm, I'm, a person that can be intense. I I have this ability to just be intensely focused on whatever it is. And so much to the point that, you know, the rest of the world kind of shuts off. So I don't know if a focus to that extreme is a good thing, um, but it certainly works for me having the ability to stay true to a particular thought or an idea or a task gets it done. It gets it done in a more efficient manner. I'm also the type of person that has, oh gosh, five or six different projects going on at at the same time. And that has the ability to clutter. So, But I don't necessarily want to say that's a bad thing either because Sometimes it, when we're being working with a creative project, you need to get away from it for a while in order for those creative juices to flow and and you know regain regain a good head of steam. So we we get to a stuck place maybe with a project and putting it aside just for a little while. What we want to get away from is putting it aside for a long while or putting it off and then. 
it becomes another cluttered piece on our desk. And if you allow those to build up and up and up, then you just get really stuck because you can't really figure out what to do next. Right. I don't remember if I said this to you or if I said this to somebody else, but um, back when I was working with Robert Allen, one of the things I noticed about him is whatever he was doing, he had the ability to give it 100% of his focus. In other words, there were absolutely no different thoughts running through his brain while he was dealing with whatever he was dealing with at that moment. Yeah, and I think that's 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 a really good quality. I think, um, but you don't want to take it to the level of ignoring people, or or um, you know, you might politely say, "Oh, just wait a sec, I'm in the middle of doing something." But I notice for me, I'll be so intensely focused that you know, my kid might ask me a question or something, and you know, I think it's real important to acknowledge people. And just let them know, hey, I'm right in the middle of something. I'll get to you here in just a second. But having that intense focus, it certainly gets things done a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently. Right. So what you just told me as far as, you know, you're being in the middle of something and telling one of your kids, give me five minutes kind of thing, is one way of dealing with distractions. Because even though you don't want to, like, minimize your own kids and, you know, put them in the category of a distraction, you know, there are probably some moments in the day when they are distracting, you know, (laughs) right? You know, I mean, you don't look at them that way overall, but, you know, I mean, they are temporarily a distraction. So what would you say is another way or um, that people, when distractions come up in their life, how they can deal with it. Well, there's always there's always the, the, the question, is this it or not it? And I, I think another good way to deal with that kind of thing is to prioritize things. It used to be that I had lists and lists and lists and not, I don't want to, no, let's not say lists and lists. I had one list. And as I accomplished things, it was a game to get it off of the list. And I still do that at my shop. My shop is a job shop. And so the name of the game is to get the job done, right? Right. Get it it off the list. To be able to grab the highlighter and highlight through that job listing as being done is the name of the game. And I did that with my lists too. And each morning I would update the list and those things that were priority went to the top of the list or the things that I needed to get done first went to the top. And as they went down and they, they got lower and lower in priority. Now, some of those lower priority things never got done, right? Because eventually they either weren't that much of an, an important priority anymore or I didn't transfer them from yesterday's sheet to the next day because then they weren't such a shiny object that I needed to focus on. There's a story told by um, Dale Carnegie and um, 
where he was asked by some CEO, you know, like, I don't know if it was Rockefeller or somebody of that ilk, and he said um, he wanted him to show him one thing that he could do to get more done in his day. And so what Carnegie did is he told him to make a list and put the top three things he needed to do that day on his list, you know. And he said, I want you to focus on doing nothing except the first one. And then when you're done with that, then cross it off and go on to the second one and then go on to the third one, you know. And the guy thought this was such a simple idea. He was like, geez, you know, I could have figured that out kind of thing. And so then, uh, and you know, and he kind of showed his disdain a little bit. But he promised he would try it for 30 days. So anyway, 30 days later, Dale Carnegie calls him up on the phone or stops in at his office or whatever and says, how did it go? And he said, oh, my gosh, it's just absolutely transformed my work yeah. because now I'm focused on one thing at a time. And he gave Dale Carnegie a check for giving him that idea. <laughs> and it said, pay me what you think it's worth. You know, well, he gave him a check for $25,000, which you figure back then in the, what, 1930s or 1940s, that's probably equivalent to a quarter of a million dollars today. Yeah, so. and and there's there's a lot of of truth to that. So now today I find myself, so my desk isn't cluttered with a list, <laughs> no pun intended. But just just that practice of doing that in the morning now, I just automatically create that list in my mind, and it's just like it's burned on my mind. So those top things are what I focus on getting done. First, and then as the day progresses, those other things that I had prioritized in the morning, you know, time opens up to get those done, and I'm really not distracted. I do it with email too. So when it's time to review email, and I get a bunch every day, I read an email and I deal with it at that moment. Right. Unless either some... reply. Dump it, file it, whatever. So when you say deal with it, what does that mean? Exactly. So it, unless it requires some more research or I have to get something else, I reply to it and or I delete it. And if I need to save it for future reference, then I have some file folders off to the side that I can then move it to that file. And I have one file folder called One. It, that's, that's its title. It's just got a number one. And those are emails that I need to deal with immediately. So what that does is it allows me to not worry about not doing something. I've done something with every email when I read it. I give... Because of my job in Toastmasters, people are asking me questions. They're asking me how they do something. They're asking me what to do. And I treat all of those that require that if somebody's asking me for help, 
they're asking for help. And I treat all of those with a, with a sense of urgency. So when when the time comes that I've allotted to do email, is what I call it, I do email, that's all I focus on. And those emails that require me to respond or reply or find it or answer a question, I do it immediately. It, with, with a sense of urgency, it's done and it's gone, and now I don't have to think about it, worry about it, or re, um, fret over worrying about forgetting it or such as that. And then my email box isn't cluttered because I've gotten rid of all the junk. I've dealt with all of the things that I need to deal with. If if it's something that needs to be researched or looked at, I put it in the number one box. And then before the end of the day is done, I open up the number one box and I look at all of those and make sure that I've dealt with them or they're pending to be dealt with. And it, it just makes for such an uncluttered... I don't have to think about what emails I missed or worry about what's... Now, I'm human, and every once in a while, one will fall through the crack, but at least I don't have 10 or 15 that I'm dropping the ball on. Right, right, right. Um, One of the things that I think really falls into the category of um, clutter or focus or lack of focus would be multitasking. So to me... On multitasking. To me, that's just a farce. There's no way that people can multitask, although people will say they can, but I'm sorry. Our minds just don't work that way. I mean, if you're multitasking, then you're not doing a very good job in anything. There's such um, homage paid to the idea of multitasking, and I used to be a person who used to pride myself on thinking I was doing 10 things all at once. And then, you know, as I mentioned before with Bob, he would do one thing at a time. And I thought, well, it's easy for him. He's a millionaire, you know. And then one day it clicked with me. You know, maybe that's one of the things that helped get him there is the fact that he's focused and not like his thoughts darting all over the place. Right, and if you really think about it, you can't do 10 things at one time. You might have 10 things at one time going on, distracting you from or or hurriedly trying to get one thing done so you can get to the next, and it's just there's just no way our minds allow us to do 10 things at once. It we 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 need our eyes, we need our senses to accomplish a particular task, and that that's what it requires. Right, right. I do get the sense the millennials, you know, they've kind of been raised with this idea of multitasking, and they think that they can do it. I see it. I see it out there, and I'm totally with you. It's like it's impossible and it's stupid. Yeah, and I, I think what you find is, is that you're not good at anything that you're trying to do. So, but when you can switch your focus and complete one task at a time, they all get done and they all get done in um, expedient manner and intelligently. You know, I, sometimes I watch my secretary typing and she's typing emails and, and she's trying to do it so fast, right? because she's trying to get it done really quick and she's trying to get her idea across. But 
most of the time she's hitting the backspace more than there are letters in the words that she's typing, right? Mm-hmm. So then she ends up with a bunch of misspellings, you well, know, she's because catching, she hit the backspace. Well, no, she's hitting backspace to go back and correct the spelling errors, right? Because she's, she's going so fast and typing the words so quick that she's making mistakes. And then, you know, every other word when she looks up, it's, oh, that word's misspelled. That's, so then she's just banging on the backspace to go back, correct it, and continue on, and then continue on with the thought. Whereas if, you know, she was really focused and watching as she's typing she wouldn't be hitting the backspace so much and it would get done 10 times faster than it would if it hadn't, if she hadn't. Right. There's, there's absolutely no reason really to have to type super, super fast anymore. You know? Well, you know, people get in that idea that that they got to hurry and quick and I got to get this done so I can get on the next thing. And you know, if you just, it will all get done. Now, here's a spiritual principle that was taught to me, I don't know, probably in the last 10 years. It's, I picked up on it somewhere. but And it's an affirmation. It's, one of, it's another one of my affirmations that I use is that we are never given any more to do than we can do in one day. So if you We're never use, given any more to do than we can do in one day. Right. So everything that you need to get done that day will get done. And mm-hmm. if you use, if you focused and got rid of the law of distraction and just focused on getting each one done in a timely manner, prioritizing them, you will find that they will all get done and you will still have time left over. If you're really mm-hmm. hurriedly trying to get things done and rushing and jumping back and forth, you're going to find that things don't get done and you've got more to do the next day. Right. Right. But that is a spiritual principle that, you know, you're never given any more in one day than you can get done in one day. Right. Talk to me about the law of distraction. You've mentioned it before, but I don't think you've ever described it. Well, the law of distraction just says that when... When you're really in focus, when you're really focused on a task, that things will, your mind will look for other things to do, or your mind will look for other things to change your thoughts and ideas, or to to distract you, rather than stay focused on a complicated task or something that's just going to take some extra time or some extra thought. So if, if you're really working on something and you're kind of getting a little stuck or something and, you know, the law of distraction will pop up and say, oh, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or here you oh, can do that. Oh, why don't you throw a load of laundry in? Oh, why don't you, <laughs> you know, exactly. so, run to the post office? Oh. Yep. Yeah. Now, it's okay. I don't want to discredit it at all. It's okay if you're really frustrated and you really get stuck on something to get away from it for a while. I, I find that that is very handy. And if you just give it 10 or 15 minutes, but then come back to it, that created that creativity and the ideas will begin to flow again and you won't be so stuck. 
But if you get distracted, oh, there's that glass that needs to go in the dishwasher. And as you're going to the dishwasher, oh, well, there's a sink full of dishes and I got to get those done. And oh, I left the cream out and it's got to go in the refrigerator. Oh, by the way, where did I put my keys? Oh, while you're looking for your keys, you see that your glass case is empty. Now I don't know where my glasses are. You know, you'll find that you'll spend a whole day just spinning your wheels and you never got that thing done. Nothing. How do you feel, um, medit- or do you feel, meditation can help when we're feeling distracted or unfocused or stuck? Yeah, I think that is, meditation is probably one of the most important keys in our lives and an important practice to incorporate into our lives because it has the ability to declutter our mind and open us up for creativity. Our our minds are like computers and, and, if if you're really busy and in in um if you're computing a lot of different tasks then the buffers in the brain tend to get plugged up and clogged up with all those thoughts and ideas not that it is that you need them anymore but it's still plugged up it, it, there's clutter there's there's all these thoughts and ideas about things that you've already done they're done but yet you've got all that those thoughts still plugging up your short-term memory, let's say. Mm-hmm. And if you can just simply take 10 minutes and reset is what I like to call it. It's like rebooting a computer. So you just get quiet and, you know, the best way to do this is just to focus on your breathing. That's 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 probably the simplest form of meditation there is because... When you focus on your breathing, you're focusing on a bodily function and you don't have all those monkey mind thoughts and your squirrel cage brain going on. And Or at least you can calm down the monkey mind thoughts. I mean, it's, yeah. not, it's usually not gone immediately, but it's a way of calming it down. Right. So when, when you're going throughout your day and it feels like you're brain is a closet that somebody just threw a super ball into as hard as they could and shut the door, it might be time to just take a couple minutes. It's it's worth hours of of productive time just to stop, reset, and then carry on. Right. Right. Good, good, good. You know, um, one of the chapter subheadings I have written down here is shiny object syndrome, you know, and you've called that squirrel, squirrel. So I went and I looked up videos on dogs and squirrels, you know, on YouTube. That was that uh, movie, House, or no, what was it? You wrote about it. It was called Up. Up, yeah. Yeah. I saw that, you know, a long time ago when it came out because I have step-grandkids, you know. Isn't that the movie, though? That's the movie where the dog... The dog's always chasing a squirrel. Yeah, it's called Up. Yeah. And the dog's name was Doug, D-U-G. Yeah, Doug. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But at any rate, you know, the reason I bring this up, all squirrels aside, is the fact that there are so many opportunities in the world that we live in. And, 
you know, I probably wouldn't put this in the book, but I, you know, in the Robert Allen seminars I used to go to, it's like it would be like a four-day thing. And day one was just Bob and Mark Victor Hansen speaking and giving, you know, kind of things to think about and sort of motivational stuff. And there were stories of people who had been successful. And, you know, it was more motivational than anything else. But then after that, it was a lot of breakout sessions. And every person who was doing a breakout session, they'd speak for an hour and a half to two hours, and then they were selling a package. And every package they were selling was some kind of business thing that you could do, you know, um, whether it had to do with some aspect of investing in real estate or, you know, whatever, based on that multiple streams of income book. So it's like people get approached with network marketing things, or they get approached with this or that, or you know, all these different possibilities. And, you know, I mean, I it took me a long time to finally get to the point where I could really just eliminate that, all those possibilities from my mind, yeah. say, no, this is what I'm doing. You know, right. and this is, I'm 100% clear. This is what God put me on the planet to do. This is what I'm doing. But I find a lot of people in like their 20s and 30s they're still kind of bouncing around trying to figure out their path, you know? Right. right. How, and that's how do you clear out all those possibilities that are not right for you and stay focused on what is right for you, or at least be on the path to finding it? Well, that's where those that question, is this it or not it, comes into mind, because your knower knows, and your gut will tell you. And if it's something that you're not quite sure, then you put it on you know, on the side to explore. Having a good, clear idea of what your purpose is, or at least what your purpose at this time is, will help you direct yourself on whether that squirrel is one to chase or not. It, 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 it's so true that, you know, we are bombarded with opportunities and, you know, we have to be able to have a check and balance system is this it or is this not it? And spirit will help you with that if this is the path that you're supposed to be on just by giving you that nudge, this is it, this is not it. And I think it's important that if you get a, this is it, then it's okay. This is it. This is what I'm going to focus on. This is what I should be doing at this point in time. How would you say that you stay? You said you have like, you know, five different things going on. I mean, you've got your business. You've got all your responsibilities with Toastmasters. You're a dad. you probably got other things we've never even talked about yet. How do you keep all the balls in the air? Well, that's the affirmation that I have um, that I'm never given any more to do in one day than I can accomplish, than I can do. Um, and just organizing my time. You know, when I get up in the morning and I've gone through my gratitude and I'm kind of planning and organizing my day, I pretty much already know when I'm supposed to be focused on what and at what particular point in the day I should be done with those projects. My other affirmation never fails me, and it's always where I'm always where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed where to be I'm there. Where I'm supposed to be there, yeah, 
Yeah. And it just never fails that I've completed something and I start to move on to something else and they're ready for me or they're ready to. Right. And I right. trust, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a genius and I listen to my wisdom. And, right. Um, I like that one. Yeah, and I, I didn't even realize that that was a part of my makeup until, you know, I had thought about it here a little while ago, but... It, it's true. You know, I ask my divine guidance. I ask my intuition. Is this where I'm, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is 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 this a, is this it or not it or is is this the direction that I'm supposed to go? And if it's a yes, then that's where I go. And I'm never. I'm. I can tell you, I am never ever misguided with that. I I can't think of an instance where I've ever. Been, where I've been misguided is with my thoughts thinking I should do this or I should do that. Can you tell me about a time when that's happened for you? Uh, I don't do it so much anymore. But, um, I'm sure some will come to me. Um, well, it just kind of happened to me tonight, for instance... I'm right in the middle of getting this conference organized and I'm a little shorthanded still on some of the chair positions and without even thinking about it, because I was at a contest, I'm always asked to go up and make announcements or let the district, let, let, let the people know what's going on. And I, I'm just getting to that point where, you know, I really need some people to step up and help me. And I was mm-hmm. talking. I was talking to the number three person. I'm the number three. I'm the number two person. I was talking to the number three person right before I was getting ready to go up and, and make announcements. And she says, "Well, you know, we, we've got these positions to fill. Can we offer them a free conference ticket if if they take on one of these positions?" And I just thought to myself, without even thinking about it, or without even asking my intuition, "Is this it, or is this not it, or is this something that to consider?" I just said, "Yeah." So I got up in front of the audience and I enticed them with these positions and I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could get a free conference ticket? And everybody's like, yeah, that'd be really great. And I said, I tell you what, I'm going to give you one if you take on one of these church positions. Well, I didn't even consider the ramifications of that because there was people in the audience that were chairs and they want now free conference ticket. <laughs> And there's people in the audience that had been chairs, and now they want to be reimbursed. I just caught so much flack. Oh, my God. I know. So so there's a perfectly good instance of not checking in and and, um, engaging. With possibilities. Yeah, and and engaging my mouth before putting my gut into gear. How's that? Right, right. I know people in the millennials generation, you know, they're like ages 20 to 35. They're kind of in that period of their life when they're accumulating, whether they're, you know, buying a house and and furnishing it or buying electronics or whatever they're buying. But tell me about the idea of shutting off the flow and accumulating too much stuff and the dangers of that. Well, here's here's a perfectly good example. So when 
when I sold my model airplane field and I had to, I and I moved out of the farmhouse, I filled three dumpsters with stuff. Oh my gosh, three dumpsters. Holy cow. Three dumpsters. Um and some of that stuff I'd been packing around since I was 17 years old. Wow. Right? Wow. It was all stuff that I was attached to. And, and of course, you know, I'm an experimenter and a mechanical nut. And anything that's mechanical that people throw away, I, you know, I love to investigate and see how those things work and what they did. And, and it, it's always large machine whisperer. Yeah. It's right. I, that's how I connect with machines. So, but I had packed around all this stuff that I'd taken apart or that I thought I would need or, um, and so it, it came a time in my life when I needed to just downsize. I mean, it was just too much stuff I had, and I, I can tell you that, sure, I probably think about things that I used to have that I need, but it, it really didn't make that much of a difference. But it then opened up my entire world to a new experience, right? How so that? After I, when I sold the farm and lost the and I sold, I didn't lose it, but I sold the model airplane field and and here I filled up three dumpsters with, just stuff that just really didn't matter to me. And I was able to find a really groovy studio apartment that was not too big, and but it, it worked for me just fine. And it wasn't but, you know, two or three blocks away from my shop where I could walk back and forth to work. I think so you've it, told me about this apartment. Yeah, so it really opened up a new chapter in my world. I the divorce was final. Um I I been through Alcoholics Anonymous. I pretty much had recovered at that point. Life was just opening up. I didn't have all of the stuff that I was packing around with me. It was all um it was freeing. And then I was able to you know, uh, at that point in my life, abundance was just really big in my life. I started a, a talk radio show at that point in time. Um, I was really getting involved in Toastmasters. Um, everything was just starting to open up for me. And a lot of that is because I wasn't packing around all that stuff. Now, we and can talk... You probably wouldn't have even considered that apartment if you hadn't gotten rid of three dumpsters All the worth stuff. of stuff. Yep, it's true. Yep. And I think along with those dumpsters in, in working in Alcoholics Anonymous and doing the 12 steps, there was a lot of mind clutter that had been thrown in the dumpster as well. See, it, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like we go through life with a backpack on our back, and we fill that backpack up with just stuff, just stuff that we hold on to, grudges and 
resentments and um that's like more like emotional clutter. Yeah. Totally. And but yet we feel we we hang on to this stuff and it's just like we put it into this backpack on our back and then it just becomes so cumbersome to even you know, walk down the street because we're so loaded down with all of this emotional clutter that it becomes cumbersome. And what we learn in in the 12 steps is, is we take that backpack off. This is an inventory. And we empty it out on the floor and we take a look at that stuff. We we kick it around and we and we certainly have another person there with us to share with them and show them this stuff and this emotional garbage and, and just um, resentments and, and just, and we kick it around and it, you know what? We get rid of it when we share it with another human, we, when we talk about it with another so human. What you're, what you're talking about is releasing. Exactly. Releasing we, emotional clutter rather than just clutter and stuff. But, it, you know, it's all clutter. Mm-hmm. It's all clutter. And then after we're done with that, this is an exercise that needs to be done three or four times during a person's lifetime. It's not more, really. You need to you need to share that personal inner thought life with another human being just to validate it, just to make sure that, because we dream up all kinds of, you know, as humans, our mind, we create all kinds of scenarios that's just, Crazy thinking, really. And then, so let's you know, say somebody is reading your book, and they are hanging on to emotional clutter. And you're saying you're talking about you know you talk about it with somebody else and just kind of lighten your burden and put down the baggage, and they're going, yeah, but they don't know. He doesn't know what I've been through. Right. What would you yeah, say to that person when it comes to just letting go of the baggage? I'd, I'd say write about it. Find somebody that you really trust and somebody that you like a pastor or a father or, uh, you know, if you're really close with your parents, although that might not be a good choice either, but just a, a counselor. There you go. You know, somebody who is in the profession of of uh, counseling. Helping people heal. Yeah. Or a healer, sure. And, you know, a, a good way to start is just by writing, you know, writing a biography. I, I, can't, I can't even begin to talk how huge that was for me to get rid of that stuff and it's just writing your story it doesn't have to be a great story it's just remembering all of those things that has occurred in your life and you know kick it around and then what you can do is you can crinkle it all up and have a ceremony and burn it and burn it yeah i know the times in my life when i've done that like i think the last time i really did that was when I was going through my divorce quite a few years ago, I think as I would write this stuff out, and of course you know I like to write, so that's a great exercise for me, it's like I always reach the point where it, what it really boiled down to that I was, that I was having a hard time letting go of was, in, in terms of releasing it 
was forgiving myself mm-hmm. for whatever my role was in whatever happened. Exactly. That's you huge. Know? You have to realize... You have to realize, you know, when you're packing around all of this emotional baggage and and that's why it takes a professional or somebody who's worked through it or somebody who understands it. That's why the 12 steps are so powerful is because, you know, once you get to a point, then it's it's pretty much recommended that you help somebody else because you've been there. Right? And the I think steps. when you... I think when you help somebody else, it also reminds you exactly. not to get caught up in it yep. again. Again, exactly. exactly. You know. And um, what was I going to say? Um, working, working with somebody else, I, and and burning it, you just realize the power, like you were talking about, of it's so freeing when you can get rid of this garbage and it just opens you up. There's so much more of you that opens up to receiving more when all of that junk and clutter are gone. Mm-hmm. Right, right. One of the things we have down here, it's the last thing in our topics for today, is the drain of clutter, which could be either emotional clutter or it could be stuff, you know. And it's huge. We've we've talked about that a little bit already. Um, so if you walk in, or if you even so, here's the deal. So you start out, you start out your day, and if you get into your car and there's just junk everywhere, and the windows are dirty, and there's dust everywhere, and you, you can't even put your coffee cup in the coffee cup holder because it's full of pens and pencil or whatever. I mean, that's just not really a good way to start out your day. You've already started out by having to deal with a bunch of junk, right? Right. So then you get to your office or you're, you know, and you get to your workspace and it, it, it's just ill setting. It starts you off in such an ill feeling that there's just too much stuff. And it slows you down because you might realize, oh, I need that report. Where's that report? So now you spend the next 10 minutes trying to find that report, whereas if it was uncluttered, you'd know exactly where it was or if you had some kind of organization system. It's the same way in our houses. And I can speak to this from experience with my hobbies is, you know, I'll get three or four different projects going and I know I have this tool. I know I have this tool, and it's the exact tool that I need. And when was the last time I used it? Oh, it might have been in this project, or it might have been on that project up in the garage, or, gosh, I packed that project up, and I put it in a box. And so I'd spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes trying to find that one tool that will only take me two seconds to complete a task that I need that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So clutter has a, a way of just really slowing us down and weighing us down because we can't find things, mostly. And it it clutters our mind when we see clutter because 
our our minds have to look through that whether we realize it or not every image everything is being processed by our brain now whether or not we're acknowledging all of those things but our brain is receiving all of that information whether you realize it or not everything that you're looking at your brain is processing that video image and right if it's processing a bunch of clutter, boy, can you imagine the processor speed that it needs to, to, to process all that? That's one way metaphysically to look at it, or metaphorically, I should say. But it's do you, true. Do you know anything, um, uh, Todd, about feng shui? Sure. Feng you know? shui is a... It's a it's, feng shui is a... Um, that has to you do know, a lot with the energy. flow of chi and life force energy. And if we've got clutter, you know, the chi is like getting stuck all over the place. Yeah. But I liken that more to it in a, in a layman's term of understanding how, you know, our, it, both ways explain it a lot. And if you're at that level of understanding energy flow and, and how energy in a, in a space, in your living space, can get blocked by the positions and and the placement of certain items or even too much clutter yeah it's easy to understand but if you can look at it from a point of our brains having to process all of that stuff everywhere that's another way to look at it right right well good i think we're done for today yay nice i hope i i didn't think i i didn't think i could talk about this topic very much that's (laughs) that's that's the only reserve that I had, Denise, when okay. you, when you first right. brought it up, was it's pretty simple. <laughs> right. Well, it, you know, but, but I think there's different aspects of it, you know, sure. like the idea sure. that, like our house, Jack, I remember Jack Boland saying our houses and cars are reflections of our state of consciousness, you know, and... um and the idea of you know there's cl- there's clutter like physical clutter like you know file piles on the floor you know <laughs> close to your desk or whatever and then there's the emotional clutter of releasing that which doesn't work anymore. Oh yeah, you know? it's huge, and especially so, if we've had tragic things in our lives or tragic things in relationships. You know whether that whether you realize if you don't talk to somebody about that stuff, you're packing it around. Right, 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 you right, know, right. You said, you said you, you you talked about oh Mark Victor Hansen. So you know him too. Yeah. Nice. Was he yeah. dating? Was I, you he know, dating? I, I have to be straight up with you. I'm not really in. I'm not in contact with these people anymore. No, but no, I, I did work it. with them in the past. No, I I totally you know. get it. Was was he dating? Was he married then? He was married then, but it was rough and. Yeah. I knew things that I probably shouldn't know. I'll just say that. Well, do you know? Because he's been married know, to Patty Hansen for a long, long time, but they eventually sure. got divorced. You know. Do you, Do you know um, Cynthia Kersey? Yes, I know Cynthia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was at her fiftieth right. birthday party in L.A. and unstoppable Mark, women, and you yeah, know, Mark, yeah. Mark was there, and. Uh, I watched her. We were all jammed into this small little restaurant. I don't think she expected to see that many people at her birthday party. And um, 
she raised, this was when she was just starting off with her building houses in Africa. Stuff in Africa and wells for fresh water and yeah. all she that. Raised, she raised like a million dollars in less than an hour just by having people at that birthday party pledge. Wow. It was pretty cool. Mary Morrissey was there. I was there. Uh, is, Mark, is Mark remarried? No, but they, he was dating Cynthia. Oh, he was dating her. Okay. Yeah, that seems like a good fit, you know, that he would well, date she's, her. She's, she's married now. She actually lives up here on Whidbey Island. But, know. I mean, it seems like a good fit that they would end up dating. You yeah. Know? I mean, and then I went, I went on that cruise with Bob Proctor. You know, Bob Proctor rented an entire cruise ship and then brought on all these motivational speakers. Right. And sold sold the cabins and he did fairly well. The second time around he didn't do so well though. I think he really lost his butt. But Mark and Cynthia were on that cruise and Mark did Mark did a couple of speaking um gigs and so did Cynthia because her book had just come out, I think, The Unstoppable You. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had her on the show a couple of times. She's pretty groovy. Yeah, yeah, she's cool. I I always like Cynthia. So anyway. Quite yeah. The story there too. Oh yeah, goodness. yeah. I know, I know stuff that I shouldn't know about Mark Victor Hansen. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> He's you know? that kind of guy, you know. You know, it takes yeah. it takes people like that to write the kinds of things they write about in order for them to understand what it is they're writing about. <laughs> right, right, right. And and you know, and the funny thing is, is that Bob, you know, they've Robert Allen and. Um, uh, Mark, you know, they've written several books together, like I think four books together now. And oh. Bob is like totally straight-laced. I yeah. mean, you know, Bob has been with the same woman since the day they married. And, you know, they've been married like 30-whatever years now, right. you know. So at any rate. Uh, Marianne, Marianne Williamson's another one. You know, she writes about some pretty intense, spiritual practices, but I don't think she could write the way that she writes and, and talk the way that she talks if she hadn't really been went through it. You know, I mean... Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, Mark's not a Mark's not much of a writer. I mean... Oh, I know. Think, you know what I mean? He's just... He's not a writer. That So, you know, you think about it, the Chicken Soup for the Soul stories are all written by other people who submit right. them. You know, and then he wrote a little tiny book like Before Chicken Soup called The Magic of Tithing. And there was one other little tiny book he wrote uh, prior to that. But almost everything else has been with... um, Collaboration. Yeah, collaboration with Bob. And Bob is a really good writer. I mean, you know, I remember he had me read multiple streams of income um, um, before it came out a few months before it came out, three or four months. And I was like, dang, this is good, Bob. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, he's, he's good with, with you know, putting together sentences and everything. Not that, I, I don't think he's written every single book that he's done, but I know multiple streams of income and One Minute Millionaire, it was like he oh, couldn't find... Oh, that's the book that I read. I was just thinking, right, you know, the purple I read one, one where it's like yep. the fiction on one page and the and the um, the how to do it on the other page. He could, right. they couldn't find a ghost. They they wanted a ghostwriter, but they couldn't find anybody to ghostwrite it. You know, 
So I mean, it, I mean, Mark and Bob they collaborated, but they collaborated ideas, and then Bob did the writing. You know, right. So didn't, anyway, didn't he write? You know, there's another book that I read that pretty much changed my approach. Did he write How to Get Your Point Across in 30 Seconds or Less? Bob? Yeah. No. Uh-uh. No. Bob's books same. are all, you know, ballpark around 300 pages long. I mean, right. they're it's like... It's the same, same style book, same size, same printing on the front even. Um, and that's the only reason I bought it. And, boy, it just changed totally how I approach things, you know. How to get your point across. It sounds good, yeah. you know. It sounds good. So anyway. Yeah. All right. So does Thursday work for you? Yep. That'll work. Okay. okay. Thursday at 6 o'clock. Kidok, I'll be there. So you've got a couple chapters you're cooking on then. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. I do. So anyway. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, you have a groovy week, and I'll talk to you here in a couple days. Okay, that sounds good. Take care. Enjoy the last few hours of our weekend. (laughs) Here we go. Okay. All right, bye-bye.
have ruled and protected the Egyptians since the beginning for more than a thousand years. They represent all aspects of life that keep the Egyptians safe. Like humans, gods can rise and fall in importance. Amun was the god of the capital Thebes. Two hundred years earlier, pharaohs fought and won battles in his name and built an empire. With Egypt's success, Amun's stock rises fast, the source of the nation's strength. Eventually, Amun merges with the sun god Ra, the sole ruler of the gods, to form the supreme god Amun-Ra. His temple becomes the wealthiest in the land, and for the pharaoh, that's the problem. Akhenaten may feel overshadowed. Finally, he makes a bold move. He wages war on the gods. Amun's name is gouged from the temple walls. Every single image of Amun is destroyed. The priests do all they can to save their god from the renegade pharaoh, and to save Egypt from Amun's wrath. No one has ever tried to destroy a god. Neither Akhenaten nor the priests know what will happen. To preserve his power, Akhenaten shatters 15 centuries of tradition. Generations of Egyptians have built temples to worship their gods, and those gods have been generous. With the gift of the Nile, the Egyptians created paradise on earth, and they know it. Everyone is fed, everyone is protected, everyone knows his place. And once you've created paradise, you don't tamper with it. The Egyptians lived in the best possible society, in the best possible organization, and anyone who tried to change it was changing it for the worse. And they avoided that. Um, people who advocated change were considered to be uh, rebels, almost, revolutionaries. That was a bad word uh, for the Egyptians. Akhenaten's radical break with religious tradition doesn't happen overnight. It festered quietly for 30 years under the reign of his father. In Thebes, Egypt's political capital stood Karnak, a magnificent temple complex built to honor the god Amunba. For centuries, this was the center of Egypt's religious tradition. But slowly, the focus started to shift to the west, to the other side of the Nile, where the sun sets and elaborate funerary temples rose. The biggest temple of them all belonged to Akhenaten's father. Amenhotep III. He ruled Egypt's most prosperous time, made evident from the smoothness, softness, and sensuality of the Amenhotep's portraits. Each cut from a single piece of precious stone. The towering Colossi of Memnon are the most famous. They once flanked the entry to his temple, which had all but disappeared. But in the last ten years, archaeologists have uncovered this enormous building. 
hundreds of workers under a gigantic stone body parts, assembling dozens of colossal statues of Amenhotep and his queen. Almost all the figures were shattered into bits and required painstaking effort to make them whole. The fully assembled statues stand up to five stories tall. Archaeologist Uric Zeruzia leaves this dig. She sees a royal couple that portrayed itself in a new, confident way as individuals. And she sees a pharaoh who aspired to be more. Of course, these colossal statues represent Amenhotep, but it is the king as God. Or you could turn it around and say, this is the God as king. The God takes the form which the king gives him. The Inbergetrenic Light. Amenhotep sees himself as God on earth, and that's new. Up to then, pharaohs had only been considered godlike. But the center of power in Egypt is not his funerary temple. It's across the river in Karnak, the cold site of the imperial god, Amunba. This is where Amenhotep celebrates the most important Egyptian festival, Ohet, dedicated to the supreme deity. And his son, Akhenaten, joins in. The pharaoh, as both head of government and high priest of the cult, leads the festival. Just as his father did before him, and his son, Akhenaten, will lead it after him. This is a glittering festival. The priests sacrifice hundreds of animals. The worshippers lead a fortune in offerings. Dozens of musicians and ecstatic dancers join the sacred procession. The god himself is carried from the temple in his own sanctuary, a holy skiff. Led by the pharaoh, the priests bring the vessel out of Karnak Temple's inner sanctum, and on this rare day, the god Amun-Ra moves among the people of the city. The cult of Amun-Ra, king of the gods, became a kind of a national um, uh, outpouring of loyalty on the part of the Egyptians. Um, he was the god of Egypt. He had made Egypt strong. Uh, if there ever was a personification of the nation, it was he, Alan Ray, king of the gods. But behind the scenes, conflict is brewing. As Amun Ra gets more popular, his priests gain wealth and power. They begin to wield their influence on the royal family and decisions of state. Amenhotep watches his priests carefully, suspiciously. A clash with the priests is coming. A struggle that will change everything. Quite awesome party song. What's up, Mikey? Hey, 
Would you? Worshipping 
on behalf of the Pharaoh, the only one who can communicate with the gods. As Egypt prospers, more and more temples spring up on the banks of the Nile, run by an increasing number of priests. Certainly, from the time of the New Kingdom, from the Empire, the priesthood was a very genuine um, uh, way of life for a huge segment of the population. And from that point on, we can speak of a professional priesthood with whole families of priests that generation after generation function in the same temple. The most powerful serve in the capital Thebes in the temple of Amunah. Karnak. Today, Karnak is one of the grandest archaeological sites in the world. During Amenhotep's time, the period of the New Kingdom, it is a gigantic complex with bakeries, breweries, huge grain silos, thousands of priests, and 80,000 temple workers. The temple controls 400,000 animals, half a million acres of land. It is a state within the state, a world within a world, and dedicated to one God, a powerful but inaccessible Amunah. At Karnak's pulpit festival, average Egyptian citizens can get closer to their chief deity before the priests shuttle him back to his home in the dark inner sanctum of the temple. Only the priests and the pharaoh have access to the holy of holies. They protect the god, and so the god protects the people. In gratitude, the citizens leave offerings for Amunpa, which the priests record on the temple walls. The generous display not only pleases the god, but encourages the people to open their purses wider. Gifts of meat, grain, wine, beer, and more flood into the temples to win the gods' goodwill. By the time of Pharaoh Amenhotep, the priests of Amunlah controlled much of the economy. By employing a large percentage of the Egyptian people, the priests take credit for maintaining the empire's crucial balance, keeping Egypt a paradise on earth. They represent the stability through a feathered goddess called Ma'at. The priests dedicate their lives to rituals designed to maintain this order and to please the gods who guarantee prosperity. The people are taught that if they neglect their deities, the gods can die, and chaos will rule their country. For over a thousand years, no one had ever dared to challenge the system. The Egyptians make daily offerings to the gods, which are collected by the priests. The greatest offerings come after a successful military campaign. When an enemy sues for peace, he must pay tribute. The pharaoh makes sure that the priests collect their share of the spoils. 
to thank Amuna for victory and to help guarantee the continuation of Ma'at. With every success, the Pharaoh and the priests amass more wealth and power. As long as there are battles to fight, the Pharaohs could ride the wave of military glory, protecting Egypt from foreign enemies and becoming heroes to the people. Pharaohs portrayed themselves through showing marketing campaigns, carved into temple walls like billboards on Times Square. Lavish, lurid, poster-colored type paints were applied all over these scenes, for the Egyptian artist's palette was very highly keyed with reds, yellows, blues. The whole purpose was to cause the scene to almost bounce out at you from the stone and to cause the entire courtyard almost to glow. This was all, of course, in the service of propaganda to promote the king as a heroic figure, a conquering heroic figure, uh, who could not be resisted. But Amenhotep has no war to fight. No foreign power threatens Egypt. He has no traditional path to glory. So he has to find another way. He decides to elevate the status of Pharaoh to that of a god. And for this new god, Pharaoh Amenhotep, Rick, you go play it? himself the biggest temple Egypt has ever seen.
inside and out. His father's temple incorporates the traditional elements of cosmic harmony. Redefining what it means to be a god. 
and revealing more of himself as a man. He leaves behind an incredibly rich country and a simmering conflict, a rivalry between the pharaoh and the priests of Amunba. As his son Akhenaten ascends the throne, what do the priests expect of him? Perhaps they'll want to avoid confrontation and reconcile with them. After all, the cult of Amunba still enriches Egypt's economy. But instead, Akhenaten will take his father's policies and extend them even further. If Pharaoh is a god, then he must have no competition. He will attack the cult of Amunba and Amun, undoing 1,500 years of tradition and rattling Egypt to its foundation. Well, I'll win. The thing is falling around. No, not 
Christian thing with the spiritual God and starts from scratch. He relaunches a new Egyptian society, 250 miles north of Egypt, in an almost deserted region, creating a new capital city. It's a crazy idea, a complete break from tradition. Afinatin takes his architects into the desert, where his vision will become a reality. Achegatem rises on the eastern bank of the Nile, a sprawling 20-square-mile metropolis to rival Thebes. It boasts 50,000 subjects, colossal temples dedicated to Aten, a vast palace, and wide streets. And yet, at the site of Achegatem, today's Amarna, little remains. Egyptologist Barry Campbell spent his professional life studying Akhenaten City. We know its borders, marked by boundary plaques, carved into the dark face of the surrounding mountains. They proclaimed that Aten, the god of the sun disk, told the pharaoh to build here. It had to be on the east side, in the mountainous area, and it had to be a place which had not belonged to any god or goddess or king or queen or anyone before. So it was a clean, pure place that had not been claimed by anyone. In the fifth year of his reign, 1347 BC, Akhenaten dedicates his city, Akhenaten. To the tens of thousands of people, he is forced to move here. He announces a new beginning in Egypt's history. From now on, they are all under the protection of the sun god, Aten. It's a time of new opportunity and equality. Today, archaeologists preserve the remains of Akhenaten City. After years of studying the foundations and thousands of burial photographs, they have traced the outlines and finally known what Akhenaten looked like. The officials live in the north, beside the palace complex. Every day, Akhenaten and his wife, Nefertiti, travel the broad avenues to show themselves to the people. On many of the Aten temple walls, reliefs depict the royal couple praying to the sun god. The palace and the temple are both arranged so that at sunrise and sunset, Aten's rakes flood the sacred buildings of the new capital. Pantheon of Egyptian gods with a single god, Aten. 
It's a simple idea, foreshadowing monotheism of believer religions, but radical in its day. And in spite of the royal couple shows no interest in their subjects, putting their own immortality in jeopardy.
found the one and only deity. And in the process, he takes power and revenue away from the priests and puts it in his own hands. It was a revolutionary step. But what's in it for his subjects? I don't think he was intending to reform society. It's a very personal reform of how the state god should be defined and approached. And an important part of that approach is to create a special place. Akhenaten decorates this special place with a neat form of art. No more strange animal gods or victorious warrior pharaohs. For the first time in Egypt's history, the pharaoh is depicted as an individual with human emotions and shown in the circle of his family as a loving husband and father. And always, the royal family is seen basking in the light of the sun god who caresses his family with his rays. Akhenaten's art is all about the here and now, not about eternal life or the gods. There are also a couple of methods from a very ordinary person, that's why which are sent from Nana to Thebes, in which the writer claims to have been in personal decisions by the author, as if the author is becoming and perhaps that was an aspect of Akhenaten's teaching. We don't know if this is what they really felt, or if they wrote it to win favor. Either way, as never before, the emphasis is on the individual. Perhaps life in Akhenaten is best understood by looking at how it ended in its cemeteries. Unlike other periods of Egyptian history, most people were buried straight into the desert soil. This rare wooden sarcophagus probably held a high official. The more they dig, the more Barry Kemp's team realizes it's witnessing a brief, unusual moment in Egypt's past. Almost invariably, ancient cemeteries cover a period of time, whereas here, the period of time is so short that it is a real population of people alive more or less at the same time, many of them probably related, knowing one another. So if you study the people from here, you really are studying a cross-section of uh, a, a population. Most surprisingly, many of the remains Kemp and his team have unearthed were young children or babies. Like this 15 month old. Ancient sources say an epidemic raged here, and the number of dead children supports that. But back then, was this pestilence seen as a curse from Babalumba, the god abolished by the Pharaoh? Ahimadi and Nefertiti worship only themselves and their new god, Aten. But behind their backs, most of their subjects disobey their sovereign and 
and secretly worship their own gods. Even in his own new city, the extent to which his new religion took root is very minimal because in certain of the suburbs of the city, we can see uh, the fetishes and little idols and other paraphernalia of the old cults still there. The people are still worshiping. What the people don't have, of course, are the big temples of the gods where they can go and worship uh, or where their relatives can find employment. Akhenaten will die young after just 17 years of power, and his revolution will die with Shortly after his death, his subjects abandoned the capital city. The survivors returned to Thebes. There wasn't much else they could do. Akhenaten's self-important cult was nothing without him.
Gamefly. Start your free trial at Gamefly.com. Find show ready to you in. I got a mortgage off from the bank today. You never have to get a loan offer. Go to LendingFree.com and shop multiple loan offers for free. Great. Yeah, it's a thousand. You should probably buy me dinner. Papa's eating steak tonight. At LendingTree, shop and prepare loan offers from top lenders. And in just five minutes, you can save thousands. LendingTree, the place to shop for money. I love day night. <laughs> Somebody's ruining it. Yeah. Well, you can leave if you wanted to. Back in the old capital, the priests bring the images of Amunpa out of their hiding places. For them, Akhenaten meant only chaos. Now, true order, Ma'at, can be reestablished. And the priests and the people can celebrate their gods openly once more. The Egyptians believed that Amun-Ra cursed their late pharaoh and all his works, so they tear down Akhenaten's sun temples just as fast as they went up. And thousands of the ready-made sandstone blocks called Tarotan found a new use. Very practical Egyptians decided to use this masonry as fill and uh, core material in later walls and pylons and underfloors and things like that. The result is that in the Karnak area, uh, well over 100,000 teletabs, each with a fragment of relief, has been preserved and is, uh, has been secreted uh, in their new. Uh, beds within the pylons and under the floors and so forth. Ironically, the decay of Karnak's temple over the centuries has been a godsend for archaeologists researching this period. As its walls collapsed, they exposed Akhenaten's Talatan locks. Donald Redford and his colleagues have spent decades cataloging them, piecing together tens of thousands of photos they've reconstructed some of the temple walls of the heretic king. The mighty reliefs that adorn Akhenaten's cold sites show an uncompromising pharaoh who insisted that everything revolved around the Akhenaten was convinced that the race of the scientists would grant him and his family eternal life. His goals were grandiose. But he violated the principle of and his fall is complete. Even as air, the boy can't magnificent temples, 
the illustrations depict the Pharaoh in his new role as high priest, talking to the gods. And the gods, in return, guarantee the prosperity of Egypt and its people. Akhenaten never appears in the official list of Egypt's kings, carved into the temple of Abydos. His name is obliterated from history. Fifteen hundred years of tradition are stronger than the mightiest pharaoh. The old rituals will continue for another thousand years. Akhenaten's dangerous vision of a single all-seeing god was repelled to most Egyptians, who worshipped at thousands of altars. What motivated him to empower Aten? We'll never know. The pharaoh was a kind of missionary, a monotheist born too soon, long before the idea took hold in much of the world. A mother can hear you. What do you mean, Jane? You're, you know, you're going to believe that the dead are all around us. She's right, Manny. She could be right here, from bony fingers reaching out from the grave. Yeah, keep it out, Jane. There's already one best person in this room. You want to make it too? I've got a printer to install. Oh, Gloria, have your grandmother run me up an ice tea on that ten minutes? Yeah, she has a better chance of making that work than you. And then you set up the stumpy and the swearing and cold feet of this good at that stuff. Better than me. Bill's not better than me in anything. But maybe making that stupid sound with his mouth. By combining this infrared technology with high-resolution space photographs, Sarah is trying to unlock Egypt's key archaeological sites with unprecedented precision and thought. And she starts at the most iconic structure of all, the pyramid. So let's move down to Sakara. So what we have here in front of us are some known pyramids, the pyramid complex of the Pharaoh Kenjer. We have a large pyramid called the Unfinished Pyramid. Alongside these already excavated structures, satellites have spotted something Sarah finds exciting. If we look to the southeast of the Unfinished Pyramid, you can see something that looks a little bit square and combining the high-resolution space imagery with the infrared technology, infrared imagery, all of a sudden we see in front of us a definite square structure with no evidence of prior excavation. You see a definite wall and ultimately what you're seeing here is the foundation of a pyramid. It surprised me. Then you think to yourself, well, couldn't there potentially be others out there? Sarah believes that the entire country is checkered with undiscovered pyramids, temples, and sites in numbers that are astounding. At one point, I sat down and I figured out what work had been done, and I came up with a number that less than 1% of all the sites had been excavated. And then you add on top of that all the other thousands of possible sites that are out there. Wow. I mean, this, this, is, this is risk for the scholars' mill for generations to come. There's so much left to find. 
Satellite images made for a cryptic treasure map that hints at a world of archaeological objects buried in the sand. If archaeologists are archiving the right, the copper would be home to a network of pyramids. But there's only one way to be sure. Driving into the desert and digging in. But first, Sarah heads to Cairo, the capital of modern Egypt and home to the pyramids. The point is to go and explore. That's the fun part. We spent the, the countless months, hundreds if not thousands of hours in, in a lab getting your hands dirty. That's what got me into archaeology in the first place. Sarah meets her guide, Rami Rahman. Rami will use his local knowledge to help Sarah with her mission. He shares a belief that much of Egypt's past remains hidden beneath the sand. There's still much, much more to be found. More money to be found. There are more pyramids to be found. More treasure that we can find. Heading south, they leave Cairo and cross the River Nile. For more than 3,000 years, this was the lifeblood of ancient Egypt. It was from these waters that one of the world's greatest civilizations was born. Today, 95% of Egyptians live on this narrow, fertile strip of land. Beyond, we are sliding more crazy But it is not entirely yet. Before long, Sarah and Robin get their first real glimpse of Egypt's spectacular past. Giza. Home to the Great Pyramid, the only surviving site of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it is still the largest and most accurately built stone monument on Earth. One man who has devoted his life to understanding these architectural treasures is archaeologist Dr. Zahi Huwak. He's especially passionate about the Great Pyramid of Giza. But to appreciate the true genius of the pyramid, you have to go inside. Constructed using two million blocks, the Great Pyramid weighs five million tons. It rises at a constant angle of 51 degrees to reach the height of a 35-story building. It was all built in less than 15 years, using only soft copper tools and a plumb line. Inside is a complex network of linking the entrance to the burial chamber each within. Dr. Hawass believes this to be the pyramid's greatest wonder. The Gargan, the most fascinating structure on Earth. The Great Pyramid of Giza is one of the most explored objects in human history, but it was a secret for 4,500 years. In the roof of the Grand Gallery is the passageway, which until 170 years ago led nowhere. Beyond was a cramped chamber, so well hidden that gunpowder had to be used to blast through it. It's 
the time when I come here, when I come to the top, I become so excited. Written on the walls of the chamber are the names of explorers from as far back as the 1800s. But a closer look reveals something remarkable. Now I'm going to get you to this big surprise here. The graffiti in this chamber goes right back to when these pyramids were built. This letter still means followers. The name of the gang who built the pyramid were called the followers gang. Four thousand five hundred years ago, left by the western of the pyramids. This place is very special. It comes from the heart. For Sarah, such discoveries go to the heart of her quest to uncover reminders. Where are you? Matt passed away. Everything I believe in about Egyptology and why I'm doing it. But for that moment, Someone reached across the time. Sarah's satellite technology is archaeologists of the new power to pull back the sands and reveal a civilization until now has been largely hidden. The technology is only past Now with the site's local, the real world is about to be
52 by 52 meters in size. Do you know what that is? 100 cubits. 100 cubits. A cubit was the standard unit of length, the distance from elbow to fingertip. It's a significant clue. 100 Egyptian cubits was typical of pyramids built in the 13th dynasty. But there is more. And in addition, very long trackway of some kind, 400 meters long, showed up. If this is a trackway, it could be how the building stones were transported to the pyramid site. Mark finds this a valuable clue. I'm impressed because Sarah is actually coming up with a dynastic cemetery of pyramid. The 13th dynasty equivalent, perhaps, of Abusir, the 5th dynasty of Giza, the 4th dynasty. And, and so that itself is, 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 a, is a great contribution. The endorsement of such an eminent Egyptologist is an encouraging first step. But to prove Sarah's technology works, the site must be excellent. In order to verify what's on the ground, we've got to get permission to, to get out there today and to survey. And I really hope to be able to do it for this summer. While Sarah hopes for permission to excavate the site at Saqqara for physical evidence of the pyramids, there's nothing to stop her from investigating who might have built them. Around 3000 BC, the first dynasty of Egyptian kings created an entirely new society. They turned mummification into an art, invented hieroglyphics, and within 500 years, had built a great pyramid of Nearly 800 years later, in the 13th dynasty, there was new enthusiasm for pyramids. The potential new pyramids, spotted by satellite archaeology in Saqqara, appeared from this period. But which of the 13th dynasty kings would they go for? Robin heads to Cairo in search of some answers. His first piece of evidence is a replica of an ancient document pieced together from 160 fragments. It names 60 kings from the era, many of them without known tombs. I love this list. It has the names of the kings and how long a king reigned. The longer a king reigned, the better the chance he would have built one of the possible new pyramids. It looks like only three of them could fall and answer these questions. Anderson has a sentence. King Nisafatum ruled for 11 years, and King Five ruled for 23 years. King Five is very interesting because he was the last king of the 13th dynasty. The burial places of around 200 pharaohs including King I, are still to be found. It's likely that many were buried in pyramids, so the possibility that satellite archaeology has discovered two more is of huge importance. Ronnie continues his detective work in the Egyptian Museum. 
hidden corner of this treasure trove, he knows of something that could link King An, the longest reigning pharaoh of the 13th dynasty, to Sarah's research. It's the top of a pyramid, known as a pyramidia. This pyramid dates back to the 13th dynasty too, the Middle Kingdom, and then a name of King An. It's King An, the last king of the 13th dynasty. Could King Ai's pyramid have capped one of the possible pyramids in Saqqara? If so, then we can use it to work out how big it would be. Fifty five. Can we start to use the evidence in the museum the other day? Can we start building a picture of what this may look like? Had like the pyramids at Giza, these later more modern structures, barely 40 meters high, would have had temples, cosmos, and If Sarah's technology has found buried pyramids here to cover, fill a blank page in our understanding of but Sarah won't be content with one. What did you get? Ice cream. What kind did you want? Exploration. What did you get? What kind did you want? Chocolate chip, or coffee, or cookie dough, or Oreo, or I got cookie dough for the girlfriend. Can I read this? What is it? Oh, it's the stuff I printed to get my mind working. No, stuff off the internet. Got more than I know. Wait, do you uh, do you have any idea what it says about the garage? There's something about garage. I don't think it doesn't get specific stuff. This is more about stuff and negative energy. Oh, I thought there was something. Clutter in the bathroom may reflect the need for you to go slow. Somebody's. So, do you think since you're doing some focus on color, do you think we could maybe let go of some stuff in Margaret's room and I could move in there? There's a twin bed that we're not using, and there's a... I'm actually thinking about putting that block bed up in there. Yeah, 
I'd really love to move my desk into there. You had mentioned when before we go to college, we could talk about it again and it's been a year. What do you think if we put my desk in there and the wash bag? Thank you. And then we have the other stuff there. Wash bag is really cool. I think Mongo's going to move yeah. yeah. on. I'm pretty much booked Saturday. Maybe Friday. Friday, I'll probably be getting ready for Saturday. That's a work day. But Sunday. Try to do something Sunday. It's nice. I don't know what it's like. Okay. Okay. Is it a bed out or something? Move your desk over there? I really love that. What's the problem now that you can't get to the desk? I just don't have a... I don't even have one room here. I don't have a room. I'm just like in corners. I appreciate that you've made corners for me and you built me a pantry. I really appreciate it, but I, in all honesty, I just feel very cluttered here. And I'd like to, truly, you live here and I live here. I'd really like to spread out a little bit. I'm just finding I don't use my desk. In that corner, because it's just too small of a size. And it's bedroom. So it's, it's really great since that space that Margo used to sleep in, she hasn't been using it for a long time, and Chloe's not going to necessarily come back if we could use the space. In a productive way, I'd really love to look out that window. This
is Tony. He was in the movie Wild. He's brought an image of a sculpture that was found here. Twitten Collins' grandmother, Queen It's one of the great masterpieces of ancient history art. What's really amazing is that detail in it only about that thing. Quite a spectacular piece. Queen T would have been here because this was uh, not only just a palace, but a harem palace, a palace for royal women, but also where royal children were raised. So, Tony Cummins did probably spend part of his childhood here. To Cummins' childhood was brief. He became pharaoh at the age of 10. When he died about 10 years later, he was placed in a tomb here in the Valley of the Kingdom. In November 1922. Which resulted in the archaeological discovery of the century. The shock of the clothes of finding is amazing, but it reduced the Egyptologist's tears. We could find them as well, famous Egyptologist, but it would fit the years, came as it broke down. Famously, Carter said, I looked upon wonderful things. It was patent treasure. All the property normally find in Jan and her small home. He made it to Army Orley, so he couldn't buy a left. All stuff. Huge old shrines and beds and couches and furniture and all the brands and his underpants and his garbage cards and God knows what. Back at the Korean, Peter is hopeful that Sarah's satellite pictures will reveal more about Tutankhamun's probable childhood home. Pockmarked by modern military bunkers. Still, the satellite imagery suggests that beneath the sand, the palace enclosure wall and some of its internal features have survived. But Sarah's image might have revealed more than a palace. It looks like an enclosed workman's village with little houses in the street. It's really incredible because people expected it was here, but to see it in that kind of detail, I mean, it's taking years, decades to excavate to get that kind of picture that you're getting. So it changes everything. It's revolutionary. You wouldn't know that this needed to be protected without this. So this way is the tool at least to help us identify and protect these areas. You just wonder. You wonder who these people are. And we forget that. And I think for me, as not just Egyptologists, but 
at archaeologists. This is why the past is so incredibly important. Sarah's technology has uncovered what could be a settlement that over 3,000 years ago teemed with life. Not just a harem, but a village for the workers who built it, and waterfront villas for its administrators. If Sarah's right, this is a thriving community serving the royal wives of the palace. Sarah could also be on the verge of an even greater discovery. A find that could reveal the fabled site of one of the ancient Egypt's most mythical buildings. The eyes you're born with are the ones you keep. Think about this. Many children need eyeglasses or contacts and don't know it. This can affect learning and behavior. But a comprehensive eye exam each year can change that. Find an eye doctor at thinkaboutyoureyes.com. I've always been protective of my little sister, a little hardly. But when she had cancer, she was a strong one. I just did my own work. She learned what she needed to eat. It could weaken my immune system. But then you found out about the last step, right? Your last step helps reduce infection by boosting your white blood cell count, which strengthens your immune system. In a key study, you asked to reduce the risk of infection from 17% to 1%, a 94% decrease. New last is for certain cancer patients receiving strong chemotherapy. Do not take new last if you're allergic to last or new rupture. Rupture explains sometimes fades when well serious lung problems and allergic reactions have occurred. Report abdominal or shoulder tip pain, trouble breathing, or allergic reactions to your doctor right away. In patients with sickle cell disorders, serious, sometimes fatal crises can occur. The most common side effect is bone and muscle ache. I need strong Yeah, I did. Ask your doctor about new last. Are you reading that? Somebody call for a
Sarah Hardcat is using space-age technology to help us see into the distant past when a mighty empire reigns supreme. She's on a mission to create a map of ancient Egypt so detailed that it will change our understanding of it forever. One site whose mysteries are crying out for further investigation is a place deep in legend. Ancient texts tell us that on this side, there existed an awe-inspiring labyrinth. Some say it was the inspiration for the labyrinth of Crete, home of the mythical creature, the Minotaur. Back 2,500 years ago, it was already a popular tourist site. If this labyrinth was the ancient Egyptian version of Disney World, was it a cottage industry? You know, was there a whole ancient resort built up around around the site? Greek historian Herodotus came here in 450 BC and later wrote the labyrinth was the most impressive he had ever seen. In a tall court with gates exactly opposite one another, a single wall surrounds the entire building. There are two different sorts of chambers throughout. Half underground, half above ground, the latter built upon the former. The whole number of these chambers is 3,500 of each kind. Herodotus describes the labyrinth as a maze that once entered is almost impossible to leave. And we absolutely need that description because when you look around us, it looks like absolutely nothing is here. We have heaps of limestone chips, rubble, because we can't get a good sense of what this place used to look like. The labyrinth has now completely disappeared, but was it as magnificent as Herodotus described? Sarah believes that her technology can help reveal the dimensions of this fabled labyrinth. I can get an overall sense of the size of the site, but not in great detail. We can see some structures to the north, some structures to the south, but when we process the image, all of a sudden, there's incredible detail. We can see and really appreciate the overall size and layout of the mortuary temple. We can see outlines of structures, houses. What we can see really for the first time is, is just how massive the site would have been for artists who have been led through dark city streets, through mysterious passageways. And once he got into the temple, he would have been left to room after room after room of incredible art. He would have been completely overwhelmed and looking every which way and losing his bearings. So this is probably one of the many reasons why he called the overall site a labyrinth. If the evidence from space is correct, then this temple was indeed enormous. Without a full excavation of the site, its true scale will remain hidden. But a couple of recent discoveries could give actual support to Sarah's theory. Sandstone slabs from the mortuary temple of Amunet III a great tall dynasty king. Robert goes to investigate it. Lucius Faustus, mental. It looks like the temple was massive. He split it by the Arachidistan. It wasn't just a dying temple. The mortuary temple of King and the Hyperbed was huge. There's another sandstone slab around the corner. It has the image of King and the Hyperbed, and it's so beautiful, it's done. So, when you look at that and you see the amount of detail on the face, on the eyes, on the crown, on the ears, 
you know how prosperous this farm was? This sandstone slab, together with Sarah's energies, appears to back up Herodotus' description. Here might have stood one of ancient Egypt's most impressive buildings. It would have comprised a maze of corridors and booths containing cults to the dead pharaoh and to sacred crocodiles. It was surrounded by a builder's town, priests' quarters, and administrative buildings. With the assistance of Sarah's technology, this lost wonder can now be brought back to life. Side by side, region by region, Sarah is trying to create the most comprehensive map of ancient Egypt ever seen. And the next phase of her quest poses an enormous challenge to uncover a site that's been lost for thousands of years. Starting Thursday, watch more muscle, more classes, and more thinking to offer data. Religion is for people afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for people who have already been there. Oh, no. 
there. He always had a state around. He takes him a week for his hunt and on. He started a global manhunt things of the inside stories of action pack games of cat and mouse and risky undercover infiltration. So we have stuff that a radio communication that captivated the nation. Mighty Vulture, Manhunt, Manhunt, Kill the Capture, only once in a ten on AC. Almost 300 years in the capital city of ancient Tunisia was sent back to the city of Chicago. It was a place of infamy, political intrigue, violent palace coups, and murder. It's one of the most important sites in ancient Egypt, and yet it has never been found. Now, archaeologists are in contact with your technology to get the biggest test to uncover the lost city. Her mission takes her 43 miles south of Cairo, where historical sources place the lost city of its tower. But there's a problem. Centuries of silt deposits from the Nile have made the archaeologist's job virtually impossible. Sarah's technology could be the only hope of rescuing the city from obscurity, but it will be tested to its limits. On the floodplain, the infrared camera can only penetrate a few feet below the surface, and each target is likely to be buried beyond the reach of the satellite senses. If this is the case, Sarah will have to try a different technique. Back in Alabama, her team displays the satellite image over a 3D map. Now the landscape looks different. The edges of the area are raised, suggesting it might have been the bank of a branch of the Nile. To analyze it, Sarah is joined by geoarchaeologists Dr. Judith Bunbury and Dr. Bettina Baker. You see some interesting sort of field boundaries up here that make it look like there's been a river migrating that way in this area. Sarah's imagery has identified a potential old branch of the Nile, ancient Egypt's superhighway. It could be the ideal location for a lost city. A team from Cairo University begins drilling into the mud to obtain core samples. It's just coming up now. Oh. Yeah, look at this. Look at this. The red. And it has to be back to The Nile deposited a new layer of silt every year in the annual flood. So the deeper they drill, the further back in time they go. This is six meters so, we must be a fair way back, saying that the general ballpark there is a meter per thousand years, so we've been thinking we were several thousand years back. I've hardly been able to sleep. This has been something that I've, I've dreamed of finding since I really got into Egyptology, the sense of something being lost means that it's out there to be found. The team has dug up a vast amount of pottery from the Middle Kingdom era. It's the right time period. But is this just the remains of a small village rather than a lost city? They begin to find the critical clues which help to build a bigger picture. Semi precious stones would have been used to make jewelry which was only worn by wealthy ancient Egyptians. This points to one thing. What they found isn't a village. 
It's a sin. Follow her. Isn't that funny? It's 
But this isn't the only thing Dr. Hawass has uncovered. He has also found an intriguing architectural structure which he has never seen before. The curved wall of a temple. At the site, the excavation team is unearthing scores of new discoveries, each more ancient than the last. This Middle Kingdom chapel is more than 4,000 years old and there's evidence of an old kingdom tomb complex, which could date back to the third millennium BC. This newly explored site alone could contain over 1,000 years of ancient Egyptian history. For Dr. Hawass, satellite archaeology has illuminated the dark corners of Egypt's past. We have to thank this new technology in the satellite imagery, because I was not interested in this site at all. And I found out only through the photographs that this side is very important. Today, Egypt is a country buffeted by the winds of political change. But beneath its shifting sands, the long buried mysteries have lain undisturbed for millennia. Now, 21st century technology is bringing ancient Egypt back from the dead by adding satellite technology to their toolkits. Archaeologists could retract the map. And what's emerging before us is staggering. Beneath the undulating surface of the desert, where so little appeared to exist, Sarah and her lab have found many thousands of new tombs. In addition, she's pinpointed up to 17 structures that she believes are new pyramids. It's reinvigorated my passion for discovering things. Knowing Hopefully this map will contribute to the future of the field of Egyptology and archaeology as a whole. I think the most exciting discoveries for the field of Egyptology are left to come. And that, that to me, um, as an archaeologist, the most exciting part of this project. One of the greatest civilizations of the ancient world. Two centuries of Egypt's knowledge exploration and excavation have unlocked incredible secrets and have revealed fabulous discoveries. Now, using state-of-the-art techniques, the very latest research, these finds are being revisited, re-examined. For the first time, the world's leading experts have come together to reveal the ultimate list the ten greatest discoveries of ancient Egypt. In Each of these ten great discoveries is a treasure in its own right. They are much more than that. It's a key, the way in, to one of the most extraordinary civilizations that our world has ever seen. The discoveries are really doorways to the past, and they permit us to see how the ancient Egyptians lived, how they thought, what they did. Objects that were decked even centuries ago still pose a challenge. They have to be decoded. How did secret messages turn this simple tomb into a resurrection machine? The themes themselves and the words inscribed on the walls of the tombs 
from a computer code or an instruction manual. What lay behind the wave of violence that desecrated Egypt's most beautiful tombs? It definitely was organized crime. Well-structured, organized groups of men. They built on a scale that would not be equal for thousands of years. No one is entirely sure how people, using very simple tools and a lot of threat, managed to construct such an astonishing monument. Across 30 centuries, their culture survived repeated invasions, outlasted all its rights. The Egyptians had such a strong sense of culture, such a long history, that really they changed the invaders more than the invaders changed them. They created a superpower that dominated for longer than any other in history. Now, science, technology, and the latest research will reveal the lives and the minds of the Egyptians. Dr. Zahi Halas is the highest ranking archaeologist in Egypt today and is guardian of all Egyptian antiquities. Working with a team of leading scientists and traveling from one end of the country to the other, he will guide us through Egypt's greatest discoveries. We are taking you in an adventure that you will never forget in your life. The first discovery reveals the ingenious piece of technology that allowed Egypt to become one of the greatest ancient civilizations. This discovery was a miracle. It showed the space of Egypt. And remarkably, this guy I met him I had a hat with a white hat. Can I have any climate? Oh, damn it! Uh, over four and a half thousand years ago, there was some water there. What he buried beneath it is, in its own way, every bit is impressive. The amazing thing about this is to this Why would Kufu bury a ship in the desert beside his pyramid? 
nobody ever talks about it again. If he's willing to sort of invoke God in his defense, then he must be telling the truth. Like most children who escape punishment for their crimes, Jesse could not escape the haunting that followed. Start having nightmares. I, I recall the misfortunes that were happening to me. You know, a splinter getting in my hand. I attributed it to John for giving me a, a sign and punishing me because I had lied about this. Interesting thing I'm saying is that I, you know, I think come from a very religious background. When Jesse grew up to become a scientist, he set out to understand why he had sensed the retribution of God in his youth. And so, he built a psychological experiment to probe just what is going on inside the developing minds of children. To them, Jesse's experiment appears to be a simple game. Well, almost simple. So, what were the rules? Who remembers the three rules? Don't pass that line. Keep one hand behind your back. Keep one hand behind your back. You don't usually use that. What was the third rule? Yeah, you got to throw with your back. Turn to the board and and take it. It's an all but impossible game to win. But Jess is not keeping score. All he cares about, as he watches from the side room, is whether the children cheat. He thinks he's alone. He thinks he's alone in the room. He wants to see if he actually follows the rules. Oh, there he goes. He actually stepped over the line, but he broke in one of the rules. So flirting dangerously with breaking some more rules. Oh, there we go. A very egregious violation. Facing it right in the middle. Not atypical. I think most kids, if they think that they're not being watched, uh, they're going to revert to this type of behavior. With children aged six to seven, a little cheating is part of the course. But now Jesse brings in a new group of kids. They are. He and his assistant prep them for the same game. Can't go over that line. Only this time, Jesse adds a supernatural twist. The children wearing the blue shirt. They're going to hear about somebody sitting in this chair. It might look like an empty chair us, but in fact, we tell these kids there's an invisible woman sitting in this chair. Now, that sounds a little scary, but we make her very friendly. We say this is uh, Princess Alice. And Princess Alice is a magic princess. She's got this special ability to make herself invisible. Well, maybe she just, you can't see her, but that doesn't mean that she's not there. She's just that's all you can feel. Most of this group of children act like they don't believe in Princess Alice. But when they're left alone, their behavior tells a different story. She's already thrown uh, all four of the balls. I don't think that she actually got any of them to stick on the dartboard. And she's not interested in cheating. I think she's being uh, pretty uh, true to the wall here. Oh, here she is. She's this is what we say sometimes with children. They actually run their hand over the chair as though they're sort of testing or trying to feel Princess Alice. And she actually said earlier that she didn't believe in Princess Alice. So that shows you that the power of belief really. Jesse has performed this experiment with hundreds of children. Hardly any of the kids who are told about Princess Alice cheat. They intuitively feel she's really there watching them. What we're really seeing here is an untarnished view of human nature. I mean, these are really young kids. 
these are six and seven year olds, you know, they've been told all sorts of things, but they haven't been told about Princess Alice. Jesse believes that regardless of their upbringing, children's minds are hardwired to believe in a hidden world of spirits, a place where Princess Alice or God might exist. But why do such beliefs take hold? Bruce Hood is one of Britain's leading psychologists. His work recently won him an invitation to give the Royal Institution's Christmas Lecture Series one of the country's highest scientific honors. Bruce is researching the psychological foundation of all religious beliefs. It's a work that started one day when he was watching his sleeping daughter. He was not contemplating the miracle of life, but rather her blanket. It's a grubby little cost. I'm sure parents will recognize this thing. Now what starts off is a little bit of self-soothing. Soon these objects take on very strange qualities almost as if they're alive. Children even talk to them. They, they, they've got feelings. They make them almost human-like. Which is extraordinary when you think about it, because it's just a piece of cloth. Bruce wanted to find out why children believe these objects are so special. So he performed an experiment with young kids on a magic machine. Bruce told the children it would make a perfect copy of their toys, thanks in fact to the help of a hidden research. He then told them they were allowed to keep only one toy and must throw away the other. Nearly every child chose the original and tossed the copy. They need the original one back. And I think it's because they're thinking in a, a socialist way. This is a, an idea that we imbue the world with this additional dimension. Essentialism is the belief that certain objects have a hidden essence, one that cannot be transferred to a copy even if it looks absolutely identical. It is a conviction young children hold strongly. But do we outgrow this sense of a hidden essence? Bruce found an answer by turning his lectures into an experiment, one that he's trying out today on the staff of the Royal Institution. It was in New York last year, and um, I bought Einstein, one of Einstein's fountain pens. So this is an original Einstein pen. I'm very proud of this. You might have a look. In fact, you're welcome to hold it. Pass it along. Now, I happen to have another thing here. And this is a cardigan. The one to Jeffrey Dahmer, the uh, serial killer who murdered 17 people and uh, briefly cut them up, ate them, and did some very expensive things. Now, would you like to? Um, Pass that along and hold it. You know, you're not going to put it on. No? Most of us are revolted by the thought of wearing the sweater of a serial killer, no matter how many times it may have been cleaned. <laughs> well, I have to let you into a secret. It's not Jeffrey Dahmer's sweater at all. But just the thought of it belonging to a serial killer, for most people, it's repulsive and repugnant. And so I have to say, this is an Einstein's pen. It's a regular function pen. Bruce believes this sense that sacred and evil essences can contaminate the material world is the most primal form of human spirituality. 
a foundation upon which every religion is built. A new religion is capitalized on this assumption that there is hidden structure. What religions do is they provide a framework and narrative which allows people to try to put these forces together as a meaningful way. Psychologists like Bruce argue that this innate spiritual intuition might be an artifact of our intelligent minds trying to make sense of a chaotic world. But this innate belief in a hidden spiritual dimension is often reinforced by experience because one in ten of us will visit this mysterious realm in an out-of-body experience. When we leave our bodies, do we meet God? On October 2nd, celebrate Manufacturing Day and buy a name for those who make this country great by making it themselves. Yeah! And join science for an anniversary marathon of Alice May. Still going strong after 10 years and over a thousand items made. Manufacturing Day and... Beyond the world we see, a place where God and spirits live. Some people believe they have glimpsed this hidden world in an out-of-body experience. Are these phenomena proof of the existence of God? Neurologist Olaf Blanchard is trying to discover what really happens during an out-of-body experience. What is very typical of this sort of body phenomenon is that it is felt as highly spiritual. You know, think about it. You feel separated. Your mind is physically or experience is separated from your, from your body. So how could this be? This doesn't, this doesn't fit. Most people who have had an out-of-body experience report being spirited away to a hidden realm. But Gala suspects these voyages to the beyond take place purely inside our heads. Because while diagnosing one of the epileptic patients for treatment, he sent a mild current to electrodes implanted in her brain and inadvertently triggered an out-of-body experience. She had the impression that she herself would be under the feeling of the stimulation room and to be looking down, seeing herself, her body, as well as the people sitting around her. Olaf had sent a mild, stimulating current to his patient's temporal parietal junction, or TPJ. This automatized body representation only stimulated in this region, in this one patient, could not fuse where you see your body and where you feel your body. And this kind of discoherent representation may lead to an out-of-body experience. The TPJ is the brain's navigator. Rather like the captain of a submarine, can't actually see where it is after the head, but has to rely on indirect measurements of his position, like water pressure reading and sonar pings. If the data coming into the TPJ is inferior, the navigation system can become disoriented. The TPJ could tell you you are upside down or somewhere you really aren't. <laughs> 
hypothesis was correct. Or realize that out-of-body experiences might also be induced in any brain, epileptic or not, by tampering with people's senses. And to achieve this effect in a healthy subject without implanting electrodes, Ola built a cutting-edge virtual reality laboratory. Virtual reality gives us the possibility in the research lab to dissociate touch from sight of our participants' body. So for this experiment, we will send the door piercing from the leg. And then I will put it on the head. And the subject sees a live feed from a camera placed behind her back. She feels a gentle stroke on her back, but sees the stroking as if her body is actually two feet in front of her mind. So the brain is exposed to a spatial conflict. And being exposed to the spatial conflict for a long time, people start identifying with the avatar rather than with their physical body. When asked to move back from where they are standing and then return to the same spot, the subjects always end up not in their original position, but two feet forward, precisely where their virtual avatar appeared to be. Feeling is, it's, it's very strange at the beginning, but it's actually very pleasant. Uh, it's, it's more like my mind, uh, like my, my body is more the one I'm seeing which is actually my body, but it's more like I'm there where I see myself to be. When all of performed this experiment with the subject wearing an EEG sensor, he discovered that the brain's temporal parietal junction was highly active. The TPJ was struggling to create a cohesive reality out of the conflicting sensory input, and the net result was the sensation that she might be outside her body. Olga believes that when we have an out-of-body experience, we never leave our body, and the entities we sense are nothing more than fans of the brain. But believers sense God in their lives every day, not just in these rare and intense moments. Many of us see the hand of God constantly shaping the world around us. And this psychologist believes she knows why. On October 2nd, celebrating manufacturing champions and Why did she die so young? Why did the hurricane destroy our town? Why did he win the lottery? To many believers, it's all part of God's plan. But psychologists are now asking another question. Why do we always ask why? Could the urge to find reason in our lives have driven us to invent God? Jennifer Whitson is a psychologist at the University of Texas, Austin. She studies how human beings interpret meaning from signs and events in the world around them. 
Her interest in the subject began when she was a girl and became obsessed with a deck of tarot cards. When I was in high school, I got really excited about tarot cards. I had a deck and I was, you know, drawing all the cards all the time. They did make me feel like I was connected to a greater pattern in the universe in some way, that the cards were giving me deeper insights than I could manage on my own. The uncanny ability of tarot cards more important than her, to see events in our lives is something many of us have experienced. And by the time Jennifer earned her PhD, she scientifically understood why. Our brains connect things, they just do it naturally. So when you draw a card, your brain will still just jump right in and start saying, oh, I am having trouble with that, oh, that is a challenge, or maybe I am overlooking this. It's like magic. Your brain will just start to make a story for you. So even though I don't believe that they're doing anything, even though I see them as just sort of a random collection of, of like very symbols and meanings, it's still really fun to watch my brain get things together for me. Nearly every religion teaches that the events taking place in the world really are connected. They are all part of a divine scheme, whether it be called karma, the will of God, or Kadar Allah. When catastrophes strike, many believers see these tragedies as the work of a higher power, brought about for reasons that we may not fully understand. Whereas others see these same events as nothing more than random chance. Jennifer devised a psychological study to try to understand why people might develop such different mindsets. They came into the study and we said, hey, you're going to see a series of paired symbols on the computer screen. The computer has generated these symbols using a concept. It's your job to figure out what that concept is. We didn't give them any feedback about whether they were right or wrong, so they had complete control over that task. This task is, however, a calculated trick to get the participants feeling in a secure frame of mind before the real test, searching for patterns in images of white noise. Then we simply show you uh, an image of death a still photograph of just noise, and we say, uh, very simply, do you see anything here? Yes or no? And if so, what? <coughs> Each participant who looked at the white noise saw it as completely random and meaningless. Now Jennifer repeats the same experiment with a new group. But for their warm-up, Jennifer has pre-programmed the computer to utterly frustrate them. The feedback that you receive is random. And so you are randomly being told that you're correct or incorrect, no matter what it is you do. This second set of subjects all believe they have utterly flunked the initial test. And when they begin looking at the white noise images, they do so feeling they are not in control of their surroundings. And Jennifer documented how it changed their perception of the random images of noise. Looking at them purely objectively, the answer should be no every time. No, no, no. But what we see is that when people lack control, they're significantly more likely to say, yes, I see something in this image. There's something there. Jennifer's work shows that lack of control encourages our brains to seek patterns in what otherwise would be random All of these false patterns, all of these illusory patterns are connected. All of them are influenced by lacking control. So when people lack control, they're more likely to see trends in the stock market that don't exist. 
they're more likely to see conspiracies in the world around them that don't exist. Because it's our instinctive sense to try and react to the situation which we lack of control by making sense of it, understanding it, even if it's a false understanding. This effect could explain why religion is so successful among the poor and disenfranchised. Whenever people feel like their lives are out of control, God helps them make sense of things. There is a lot of randomness in our lives. There is a lot of chaos. There are many, many, many things we do not control. And so we have to pick out of that chaos things that are meaningful to us to make a sensible story out of our lives. Psychologists believe that our intelligent minds constantly strive to make sense of the world. For every action, there must be a cause. But there are other intelligent creatures on the planet. Do they believe in God? This is the most dangerous, insane, backwards thing we've ever built, sir. People perform religious rituals. Buddhists chant, Hindus draw shapes and chalk, Christians baptize. Scientists now believe our spiritual behavior stems from our advanced intelligence. If this is the case, do other intelligent creatures experience God? Mm-hmm. Of the University of Louisiana is a world-renowned expert in comparative psychology. He's a particular scientist who intimately studies the mind of chimpanzees. I first became interested in chimps when I was 14, and I had read all of the work about how they could use sign language, do all of these fabulous things with tools. And so I thought they were pretty much carried human children that couldn't quite speak. And the scientific story was that they were self-aware, you know, for a young, introspective teenager. That meant there might be another organism out there on Earth that was asking the same existential questions I was about what it meant to be alive. No, this is mine. Come on, you got one. And for Danny, the most important existential question a thinking creature could ask was, is there a God out there? So when he grew up to become a scientist, he developed a series of tests to explore the difference between the way chimps and humans think about the world. We're going to give a little test here with a short object, a long object. Basically, who knows which one to use. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. But you can see he knows to use the long one here to get her treatment. Good job. Good job. Billy the Chimp immediately knows that only the longer stick will reach the gun bears. The short and long sticks are obviously different to him. But the Chimp's not all tools are as easy to tell apart as they are for us. Okay, now we're going to try something. 
In this experiment, the goal is to crush a nut with one of two blocks. The blocks look identical, but in reality have different weights. Do you know which one is there with the nut? I don't know. Because the fellow is going to be on the board. Because this one's more heavier. What is your right? <laughs> Good job. Good job. Good job. Now, Billy takes a crack at the same time. We're going to say Billy can immediately figure out which one to use. Okay. Okay. That's the hard one. That's the hard one. Yeah. Crack, crack, crack. There you go. There you go. Good job, Bill. Good job. The ability to understand that objects that have hidden properties, like weight, appears to be beyond chance. But how about understanding that other living beings have something hidden under their skulls? Can chimps sense the minds of others? Theory minded, our ability to empathize with other people and imagine what it might be like to be in that other person's perspective from a certain point of view. We know that a chimp like Billy can approach someone, make a gesture, look up into their eyes, and ask for cookies if he wants them, or a gummy bear. But does Billy realize that someone can actually see him if there's an inner visual experience? Then we came up with another experiment to test whether chimpanzees possess a theory of mind. He shows Billy two pairs of sunglasses. The blue ones are normal, and you can see out of them just fine. But the yellow ones are blacked out on the inside. When Billy puts them on, he's completely in the dark. Now we're going to let Billy observe someone else wearing these sunglasses, and we're going to see if he knows that only the person wearing the blue one can actually think. Even though chimps can easily distinguish the colors of the sunglasses and they know the yellow ones are blacked out, Danny found that chimps approach food givers at random. Chimps do not appear to know or care that other creatures are conscious beings. But human beings already have a theory of mind at a very young age. The last one for Tony Fair, but she can't say a word if he got to stand this side of the road. Ready? Oh, good job. Good job. Why did you ask her for one? Because he can see. I remember it. He can't see. Because it's fake. What about how do you know she can see? By somewhere between three to five years of age, young children consolidate a human way of thinking about the world, that there are features of the world that they can directly grab a hold of with their hands, feel, smell, hear, taste, see. And then there's a more abstract world also that bridges together these things, things like force, mental state. And unlike that, no matter what age a chimp is, even full adult chimps never seem to make that leap. We share our planet with chimpanzees and about nine million other species. But Danny believes that only Homo sapiens 
is capable of believing in God. Because being able to perceive a divine consciousness requires a theory of mind, which we alone possess. Chinese are not rituals of any kind. They're not cultural traditions that are passed on that are at the level of worship or praying. They share with us a lot of abilities that we have. But the human mind has something different. The core of religious experience involves not only sensing this divine mind, but also communicating with it. Does God really answer our prayers, or is it all just an audience? On October 2nd, celebrate Manufacturing Day in August, a day for those who make this country great by making it themselves. Yeah! And join science for an anniversary marathon of how it's made. Still going strong after 10 years and over 1,000 items made. Manufacturing Day and the How It's Made 10th Anniversary Marathon starting Friday, October 2nd and continues all weekend long on site. Question everything. Go to MSGDay.com to find out how you can get involved. Mary Marie was definitely the greatest day of my life. It all started from meeting on the carpet. We both found the perfect person. From the, the depth of the questionnaire, we were right for each other from the first time we met. I never in my life thought that I would be as happy as I am with you. Come see what eHarmony can do for you. Stop waiting. Start communicating for free today. Darn 
there's so much stuff that could go wrong. The dinner program is the heart of our mission. We don't want to just feed people's body, but we want to feed their spirit. The every employee for the ones who served their very first French meal. It's extraordinary to know that discovery has this human heart and it's made We all have the power to change the world. Together, discovery and our partners are doing just that. The Book of James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God, and it shall be given. Hindus pray to Lord Shiva to protect them from harm. Nearly all religions believe we can petition the divine for help or guidance. But how do we hear God's answers? Today, Baron's psychological research has shown that children instinctively believe in supernatural entities from a very young age. Baron is trying to figure out when they begin to believe those entities can communicate with them or send them signs. We create a laboratory situation where unexpected things happen in the environment, and we find out the age at which they begin to see uh, events happening that aren't expected and basically being signed. Jesse and his sister particularly place a ball in one of two boxes and ask the children to guess which one. However, he also lets them know they have a supernatural helper in loyal scientist, Princess Alice. Princess Alice can make herself invisible. That's her superpower. She's going to tell you when you pick the wrong box. I don't know how she's going to tell you, but somehow she'll tell you when you get the wrong box. Let's say that a kid puts their hand on top of the box, and all of a sudden they see this light flickering in the corner of the room. The expectation would be that they would simply move their hand to the opposite box, and then they understand that she is giving them a message or communicating with them. And then we're going to see a four-year-old um, and see how she responds to Princess Alice talking to her. Looks at the light, but not terribly interested. Doesn't seem to be motivated to move her hand to the opposite box. Jesse argues that belief in the divine requires a theory of mind, the ability to comprehend that other beings are thinking. But two-way communication with a hidden entity requires something more. Children must be able to understand that Princess Alice also has a theory of mind, that she too is aware that they have a mind. A mind hard at work choosing a box. And as simple as this might seem to us, this is actually a fairly sophisticated kind of achievement. Yet understand that Princess Alice is communicating with younger children can't do this. Uh, it's only about age seven or so, seven, eight, nine, that we begin to see a clear Children may attribute the space flickering like the present family, but they cannot comprehend that she's doing it to send them a message. 
And while younger kids might praise God, Jesse's work shows that only older children with more developed intelligence actually perceive chances for prayers in the world around them. Princess Alice is basically being sort of God by proxy. She's making these things happen like the light flashing on and off, just like God would in principle create a thunderstorm. Good news. Great news. Definitely, we develop a mental ability to read these messages, whether we believe in God or not. Yes, he experienced this phenomenon firsthand when his mother, Alice, the inspiration behind Princess Alice, was dying. She wasn't convinced, absolutely, that there was something after that. But she told me that if there was, she would come back somehow and give me a message and communicate with me. After she passed, Jesse was overwhelmed with grief. And as a scientist, he was shocked at what his mind did next. When she died, the following evening, the wind chimes outside of her window, where she had away, started to, to move in its style. Which was odd, because there wasn't a lot of wind. And my mind immediately sort of left to the conclusion that this was my mother telling me that she was okay. She's giving me a message. Not 